Hi, I'm Jeremiah. Hi, I'm Stephanie. And, and this, this is, is Under, Under the, the Covers. Covers. Welcome back. Thanks for checking in on uh, episode 12. Uh, it is a gray Friday here in Boston. Gray emotionally as well for those of us <laughs> yes. who, uh, well, I'm disclosing my political affiliations by saying that, which I suppose is okay. <laughs> Last week we kicked off 2017 by talking about dating and how to begin a relationship, how what to watch for, what to be aware of. And this week we're switching to a different kind of relationship, uh, but one that's becoming more and more prevalent, not just amongst the clients that we work with, but also amongst uh, our, our generation. That's true. What we're talking about today are open relationships. Mm -hmm. So we'll talk a little bit more about what that means. So we're going to talk in a little while about mm -hmm. different kinds of open relationships and really flesh out this definition in more detail. But for now, for the sake of our introduction here, I'll just say that open relationships for our purposes are relationships in which the couple agrees that they are going to be okay with having other relationships, sexual or otherwise, outside of that couple relationship. Right. So Jeremiah, I actually saw an article on the website Bustle that I wanted to talk about. I think you Bustle, okay, yeah. yeah. The title of the article is Half of Millennials See Monogamy on a Spectrum Like the Kinsey Scale. Mm, okay. So there's a lot going on there in that title. Right. I think we know what millennials are. Right. We don't need to explain that. Monogamy meaning um, basically couples relationships where there are no outside partners. We're exclusive. exclusive we're only romantic yeah. and sexual with each other. So the Kinsey Scale was developed by Dr. Alfred Kinsey, who was a sex researcher. There's actually a great uh, movie about him. Jeremiah, I know you're a big Liam Neeson Liam Neeson. <laughs> so Liam Neeson plays... Um, plays Kinsey. But so Kinsey was a sex researcher, one of the very first who really created a lot of the foundational understandings that allowed sex research to continue from some foundation. And so one of the things that Kinsey is most well known for, I think, is he developed this scale that he used to talk about sexual orientation. Mm -hmm. So on one end of the scale, someone might be considered strictly heterosexual. And on the other end of the scale, the person might be considered strictly homosexual with sort of equal interest in both male and female in the middle. Mm -hmm. And then sort of variations in between. So not just a three-point scale and not thinking about sexual orientation in terms of boxes that people fall into where someone is gay, bisexual, straight. But, but thinking about it all in kind spectrum. of a spectrum. Yeah. I think it's really interesting to use the Kinsey scale, that sort of spectrum-based understanding of the kinds of relationships people want to have when thinking about monogamy, because I think we tend to think about, well, a relationship is either monogamous or not. Right. And so to think about it on a spectrum is really interesting. What did you find interesting about the study? Well, yeah, I mean, we've been moving more towards a model of gender being on a spectrum as well. Uh, we've talked about this in the last few episodes. We don't want to be restricted by traditional gender roles, strictly male, strictly female. And actually, the Bustle article that you're referring to, I actually read something in Washington Post that was referring to the same thing. Mm. And that author reminds us that 38% of millennials lived with more than two parental figures in their lifetime, which in the last 70 to 80 years since this data has been collected is an all-time high. Family structures have more mobility, more adults moving in and out, which means that long-term monogamy is getting shown to fewer and fewer of us. Mm. We are more used to also the idea of open relationships. It sounds like what you're saying is that as current generations are getting older and thinking back on their childhood experiences, the experience of divorce is demonstrating to 
some people that monogamy in the long term, at least for their parents maybe, was unsuccessful. Right. And so the more people that are out there with that experience, maybe the more people who are considering other options long term. Absolutely. Really- uh, in this article, there were researchers at u.gov who asked about a thousand people of uh, different age groups. The question, what do you think about a monogamous relationship? Would you be open to being in an open relationship? So we're scaling on, let's say, one to five, although this research did zero to six. Let's be clear about some of what the the research says then. In these studies, 56% of people under the age of 30 reported not being okay if their partner wanted to engage in sexual activities with someone else compared with 60% of folks ages 30 to 44, and around 75% of folks age 45 and up. 26% of folks under 30, 25% of folks 30 to 44, said that it depended on the situation. The research didn't clearly define what situations would be okay, So, so that means that people would be okay with their partners moving into another sexual relationship in certain situations. The research wasn't clear necessarily about what those situations were. Open relationships are okay in some circumstances, not in other circumstances. That would be really fascinating uh, things to study moving forward. I have some ideas about this. I've just from from conversations that I've had with Mm -hmm. folks, and I think one immediate thought that comes to mind is the idea of long distance relationships. I think that's a common scenario where people can wrap their head around the idea of being in an open relationship. Okay, you know, I've got some needs that I want to have met. I'm still with my partner, but they're across the country from me. They're traveling for business all the time, and it kind of works for us to be able to have some freedom in this way. Right. So that's one thought that I have. But anyway, yeah, go on. The research also showed that 17% of participants, both in the 18 to 29 and 30 to 44 age brackets, have engaged in sexual relationships outside of the relationship with their partner's consent. So Can you break that down? One of every six people that were tested in this, and fairly large sample size, about 1,000 people, yeah. have had a sexual relationship outside of their primary relationship with consent of their partner. So basically, they had sex or sexual activity with someone who wasn't their partner and their partner was like, that's cool That's with me. great. Yep. Yep. <laughs> okay. When, what, what did you say? I'm sorry. The percent was, was what? 17%? 17% in okay. both of those age brackets. And then 21% of people under the age of 30 and 17% of those in the 30 to 44 bracket said they had sexual relationships without their partner's consent. Oh, that's very different. Very different. And something that we'll talk about for a few minutes as a way of distinguishing consensual open relationships and non-consensual open relationships. Yeah, I don't think non-consensual open relationships are a thing. (laughs) True, true. Those those are called affairs, actually. Yeah, So we wanted to do our cover song uh, towards the beginning of the episode. And uh, we're really excited to do this song this week. We hope you enjoy our cover of Part-Time Lover by Stevie Wonder. Call up, ring once, hang up the phone To let me know you made it home Not want nothing to be wrong With part-time lover If she's with me, I'll blink the light to let you know tonight's the night for me and you, my part-time lover. 
with friends and we should meet Just pass me by, don't even speak No, the word is a street With part-time lovers But if there's some emergency Have a male friend to ask for me So that she won't peek It's really you, my part-time lover I'm so excited that we got to do a Stevie Wonder song. The song was so hard. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have my keyboard out or my brass or, or anything like that. I know. I needed that. <laughs> Stevie Come Wonder. Come on. Get with the instrument game. <laughs> let, let, me, let me go learn trumpet and saxophone oh. real quick. Uh, Stevie Wonder is one of my favorite musicians of all time. The way that he contributed to R&B and funk, particularly with his usage of the clarinet keyboard, mm. and that's the sound that you famously hear in Superstitious, the that sound. Is that what it sounds like? That's exactly what it sounds like. Uh, and you, you hear that keyboard throughout many of his songs in the 1970s. I'm amazed by the ways that people with congenital disabilities, such as blindness, become experts in artistic talents. The way that Stevie Wonder feels his way around a keyboard and harmonica is so fascinating to watch if you've seen him perform live or in a music video or anything like that. And think of all the amazing songs he did. Sign Sealed Delivered, Sir Duke, Higher Ground, Isn't She Lovely, I Just Called to Say I Love You. He recently did a carpool karaoke with James Corden. Oh, I 
miss that yeah, one. Yeah, it's so good. It's it, it's really, really good. It's one of the better ones. And he was signed by Motown at the age of 11. Think of what you were doing at the age of 11. Waiting for my Harry Potter letter. <laughs> <laughs> Hogwarts letter. Geez. Hogwarts letter, yes. I'd like everyone um, who's at home listening to this right now to know that I'm wearing a Ravenclaw sweatshirt. <laughs> That's a, a self-disclosure that I'm comfortable sharing on this podcast. And the sorting hat would have... Um, <laughs> The sorting hat wouldn't waste its time putting you in Ravenclaw either. What it would does be, that mean? It means you're very smart, uh, you're very thoughtful, you're very analytical. Just like the folks in Ravenclaw. Oh, Ooh. like it wouldn't take too long? Yeah. Oh. It would be on your head. Ravenclaw. Next. Oh, got it. Stevie Wonder has 30 U.S. top 10 hits. Uh, most of them were written in the 70s, where four of his albums received Grammy Awards for Album of the Year. By the late 70s and 80s, his music becomes gradually more politically motivated. Uh, so remember, funk and R&B were artistic representations to the African-American experience in similar ways that hip-hop has been in over the last 30 years. So there's this beautiful article in Slate last month describing how Stevie Wonder helped shape a sense of African-American identity for Barack Obama, as he has for countless of other African-American men currently in their 40s and 50s. His song Happy Birthday in 1980 was incredibly influential in the recognition of Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday as a national holiday. And after four years of political argument with this version of Happy Birthday kind of as the anthem uh, for this movement, Ronald Reagan passed the MLK Day bill in 1983. Stevie Wonder's pretty private about his love life. Most of his love songs that he's famous for speak of romancing a partner trying to win back a partner, and marriage. He doesn't really talk all that much about sexuality in his songs. And then there's this song, Part-Time Lover, in 1985. It's on the album In Square Circle. It also won a Grammy. Part-Time Lover was number one on the Billboard Hot 100 chart for several weeks. It's assumed that Part-Time Lover is about an affair. There's a secretiveness about this relationship. Right, for sure. If my primary partner's with me, I'll blink the lights so you know not to get too close. Mm. And as we talk about in our episode about eroticism and fantasy in a few weeks, there's something incredibly passionate about a tryst. Mm. Uh, knowing that this is so wrong, that's what makes it feel so right. It adds an intense amount of energy to these types of relationships. And then if you see in the music video, there's this scene at the end where the author realizes his partner's been having an affair as well. Right. I guess two can play this game. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm curious what else kind of stands out to you about Part-Time Lover or, or Stevie Wonder. I think that that reveal at the end of the song is so interesting because the whole song, you're sort of listening to it thinking, this is a secretive thing. This mm -hmm. is not really okay. I can't, you can kind of you hear the excitement. Maybe some people can relate to that. Even if you haven't been in that situation, you can kind of imagine that this is a very kind of exciting but like risky endeavor mm -hmm. <laughs> this relationship that he's having and then in the end when he reveals that his partner is probably having an affair also i think that there are some people who might take that and think oh, well i guess that means they should split up but then i think on the other hand maybe that means that they're both able to open up and be okay with what's going on and potentially minus the secrecy right so at the end, I'm kind of wondering, 
if these two couples are honest with each other about what happened, maybe there's some disagreements at the beginning. Oh my gosh, I can't believe you were in an affair. Oh my gosh, I can't believe you were in an affair. What were you doing? Maybe there's some of that at the beginning, mm-hmm. but eventually maybe they could be led to, wait a minute, what if we're swingers? Mm-hmm. What if we're couples who, with this other couple friend or with other uh, friends of ours, move outside of the maybe initial relationship the way that we thought it to be Mm. into something different, into a more open relationship. Yeah, interestingly, I think what we see in couples therapy with folks who've had affairs, Mm -hmm. often the hurt is more about lying and betrayal than it is about actually being with another person. Right, yeah, I find that too, that couples don't usually complain... You had sex with another person. Sometimes that happens. You lied to me. Yes, exactly. You betrayed me. You I betrayed don't trust me. You. Yes. That being said, I think maybe it's time to define some terms a little bit. What do you think? Absolutely. And and distinguishing then open relationships from the affair that's going on in a part time lover. Yeah, I mean that's a huge thing. I think that they're in no way the same thing. And I think we want to be really clear about that. So if you do any reading and there's, as you know, an excess of information on the internet about every imaginable topic. (laughs) So even if you just Google this and start reading stuff, there are lots of terms that come up around this topic. So Mm -hmm. I think we want to just talk a little bit about what some of those terms are and what they mean. Just kind of an overview. Yep. Um, And then we'll get into some more practical stuff in a little bit. So as we said at the beginning of our episode, we're talking about open relationships as sort of an umbrella term for couples that agree with each other consensually, no secrecy, not cheating, not affairs, not infidelity. That couples where the partners agree with each other that it's okay with them if there are sexual or potentially romantic engagements outside of that relationship. And what's What the couple agrees is okay with them and what's sort of part of their relationship system, if you will, is totally different couple to couple. Some people place limits on it in different ways and we'll we'll talk about that more. So so open relationships being a big umbrella term, sort of synonymous with the word non-monogamy, which is a a big word and a tongue twister. So we're going to just stick with open relationships. Non-monogamy is a term that gets used in the world of open relationships. Right. Uh, but for right for the conversation, we'll use open relationships as a term. Yeah, I've actually heard the term ethical non-monogamy mm. as mm-hmm. like a, people who engage in these types of relationships are specifically making sure that when they're talking about it, they're describing it in a way that emphasizes how important the ethics of this process are. And this is something that we want to do in this conversation as well, is focusing on how to establish positive ethics. Uh, should you choose to explore an open relationship. And we'll talk about guiding you through a process of that. I'm curious maybe if we can name a couple of types of open relationships. Um, I made reference to swingers earlier. Mm -hmm. Uh, Swingers being couples who date each other or individuals who date couples. What are some other types that come to mind of open relationships? Um, I think another umbrella term um, that we hear is polyamory. Mm -hmm. Poly meaning many and amorous meaning love. Loves. So polyamory, many loves. So a personal interest area for me is polyamory and the components of polyamory that are 
I, I won't get too technical on you guys, but identity versus lifestyle. There are some people who will say, I am polyamorous, and they, mm-hmm. they strongly identify that that's who they are as yeah. a person, so it's part of their identity. And then there are some other folks who will say, I'm in a polyamorous relationship. So it's not so much about who they are, but, but more about the type of relationship that they're yeah. in and the, the kind of lifestyle that they right. live. Um, and for some people, it's both. But it, it's really interesting to me to hear people who describe themselves and their relationships in this way, kind of the different language that they use. So yeah, I kind of geek out about this a little bit. <laughs> for me, one thing that helps me kind of understand this and the differences between terms, a way that I think about this, is that I think we can think about polyamory being a little bit more romantic than just kind of general open relationships. So what I, specifically what, what yeah. I mean by that is... In poly relationships, the other partners that may be involved Mm -hmm. are also romantic partnerships a lot of the time. Whereas there are some couples in open relationships who will say to each other, it's okay if we have sex with other people, Mm -hmm. but I'm not okay with you having a boyfriend or a girlfriend or another partner who is equal to me in terms of your emotional investment, Mm -hmm. in terms of the romantic component. Right. I'm thinking also about kind of a hierarchy of relationships, that there is one subset of poly in which all relationships serve kind of equal but different functions, whereas there's another subset where there's a primary partner, and then there are secondary partners that do different... So so maybe the secondary partner is someone that uh, is just a sexual relationship, but not Uh, boyfriend or girlfriend. So in the reading that I've done about this, what I've found is that a primary partner might be someone who kind of has the greatest level of priority, not necessarily meaning importance, but like mm. this could be someone that you live with or are married to or yeah. are co-parenting with, sharing finances with, share holidays with, those kinds of things. A secondary partner would be more like a dating partner who maybe doesn't get first priority when it comes to what are we doing on Christmas or who may be similarly emotionally involved, mm-hmm. but the logistics are different. I've actually seen, and I don't know how many folks in the poly community use this terminology, but the term tertiary partner to refer to sex only. Okay. But again, I think that this is an experience that is so individual for people yeah. that the language that gets developed applies to some people better than others. Right. And so the authors that I've read may be describing it this way, but there might be people who use different language for their experience. So I just do want to be clear about that. And I think that that's important also to say for our episode as well, that we'll be giving some really practical tips here in a few minutes. And some of them may be really, really functional for you. Um, and some of them you may decide that you're not particularly interested in. So let me ask you a question, Steph. Sure. What would make somebody interested in an open relationship, particularly transitioning from this larger social model Mm -hmm. of kind of one partner fits all, this exclusive long-term relationship model? Right. So I think that's a really big question. And like I said before, I think that this is a very individual experience. Mm -hmm. I think that there are some people for whom this is kind of natural Mm -hmm. and feels like part of who they are. Mm -hmm. And I in no way challenge that. I mean, I I think that that's absolutely the case for some folks more than others, which speaks to the article about whether or not it's a spectrum. You know, I, I really do think that the kinds of relationships people thrive in are very different. And I don't think there's any kind of 
inherent value in any of that. Right. So that being said, reasons other than just kind of feeling like this is who I am might be, we talked a little bit about like long distance. I also think as we grow and change our, we change and sometimes our relationship needs change and our attraction might change. All these might create situations in which partners talk to each other about what are our options here? I mean, Mm -hmm. we're kind of struggling with this being our only relationship, maybe we want to explore something new. Maybe we want to bring some excitement in. Sometimes affairs, though affairs clearly are not open relationships, yeah. sometimes create a platform for couples to talk about the possibility right. of having other partners. Why did this affair happen? Yeah. What, do we need to reassess what our boundaries are as a couple, what yeah. our agreements are as a couple? Also, culturally, we have this idea that one person is supposed to fulfill all of our needs. And I think that that is such a dangerous thought. Kind of leading back to this idea of dating. We were asking last week about what the purpose of dating is. And there's this larger narrative out there that the purpose of dating is to find my one true love. That sounds really, really stressful. Mm -hmm. (laughs) As the reality is that there are hundreds, if not thousands of women, as I identify as heterosexual, out there that I could figure out how to make a great partnership with. Mm -hmm. This is going to mostly remove the notion of me as a romantic, but the idea of soulmates seems quite ridiculous. Yeah, I agree. So if we're not careful, marriage or long-term relationships means that my wife and I are business partners, best friends, co-parents, should we choose to have children, emotional confidants, and sexual partners. Now, remember that we've mentioned couples therapy isn't so much about creating closeness, but it is more so about managing distance. The more differentiated a couple is from each other, meaning that partners have the space to be their own people with minimal pressure and anxiety from their significant other, the more likely they are to then come together in positive erotic and sexual encounters. The reality is partners are going to, in fact, they need to, Go outside of the relationship to get individual needs met. Mm. It's healthy to go out with friends to talk about difficult weeks. It's healthy to have people to get advice from. One relationship cannot be all of these things. Right. And I mean, think about the pressure we put on each other. Exactly. In those kinds of situations. Right. It's enormous. Um, And I think that this is one of the benefits then of the conversation of open relationships is that it changes our perspective of the way that we do boundaries and the way that we can use multiple people in our relation, in our, in our life, in our circles to grow. For a lot of this episode, we are relying on the words of the book Ethical Slut. The subtitle to that is Ethical Guide to... To non-monogamy, polyamory, and open relationships. Authors uh, Dossie Easton and Janet Hardy. And one of the things that they talk about is the distinction between the starvation model of love and the abundance model of love. And Steph, I'm wondering if you could take a couple minutes maybe to distinguish those two. Yeah, so the two different models that they talk about in this book, yeah, and um, and not just in this book, but a lot of writers who identify themselves as part of the poly community mm-hmm. um, write about these models. So the starvation model refers to kind of the dominant model that we have in our culture for thinking about love and how love works in terms of romantic love. We see this a lot in media. We're always kind of talking about what we see in media on this podcast. Yeah. And so when we watch movies... 
whether they're romantic comedies or not, um, we often see people finding the one or struggling to figure out their love triangle situations where their truest partner kind of comes forward and they are together in the end. This is the soulmate thing. Yeah, it is. Yeah, exactly. I mean, unless you buy into the idea that you can have multiple soulmates, in which case we're moving into the abundance model. Yeah, so the starvation model basically suggests that having more than one romantic partner somehow dilutes the experience or or the importance or quality of the mm-hmm. primary or the original relationship. Yeah. Language like, if you really loved me, or if you really loved him or her, mm-hmm. you wouldn't need anyone else. Mm. Right. And, and again, what huge amounts of pressure we put on our primary relationships. Right. And so the abundance model is an alternative way of thinking about love in which love isn't a limited commodity that we run out of. It's not a resource that we, um, once we spend it all, we have none left. Yeah. So this is the idea that love kind of exists in abundance. And, mm-hmm. and the example that I think makes the most sense in, in understanding this is if a couple has children and they have a, they have one child. Right. Um, and then they have a second child. It's not that all of a sudden all the love that they had for that first child has to get split in half so that they love the first child a little bit less in order to accommodate the love that they need to give to the second child. But, like, that's not how it works. Yeah. Um, all the love that they had for their first child is still there, is still as strong as it ever was, kind of ever growing, mm-hmm. as we know, happens. And then their love for their second child grows naturally right. out of that relationship. Um, and so... This is the idea that folks may use to think about how romantic love can work this way, too. Yeah. And for some folks, it really does. Mm -hmm. So that's the difference between the abundance model and the starvation model. And so it's not so much that these two models are just ways of thinking about Mm -hmm. how love works, how romantic love works and can work. And I want to be clear, too. I mean, Jeremiah and I are both very positive, open, and accepting when it comes to open relationships. And we are really advocating for... The idea that these relationships can be really, really positive for people, and for some people can be kind of the truest way that they express themselves in relationships. Um, We're not saying you have to be in a relationship like this. I do want to be clear. You know, there are some people for whom monogamy feels like the right fit for them. Mm -hmm. But I think the abundance model is a great way to think about love. And I think that relying on this way of thinking about love can allow us to be a lot more accepting in general, the ways that other people do things definitely particularly their relationships so as we said we want to give some tips today about how to help folks who are in one of several categories folks who are interested in opening up an existing relationship folks who are already in an open relationship or people who are not in a relationship but are interested in being in an open one and one of the beauties of our conversation is i think that folks in open relationships who do open relationships really well, have a lot to teach the rest of us about open, honest, clear, concise communication. Absolutely. I think that the tips that we're going to be talking about today are essential for open relationships, but extremely positive and helpful for all people. Definitely. The crux of really what we're talking about in our tips is communication, as Jeremiah said. So we're saying that open communication is is essential. I'm curious, Steph. So let's say that a couple comes to us in couples therapy. 
and they are talking about wanting to open up their relationship. Mm. What are some specific things, some specific forms of communication, some specific needs that we can ask about in helping mm. clarify what this open relationship looks like? Yeah, I mean, I think I, what I want, what I would want to stress first, and this is more of a broad thing. Mm-hmm. And I I hope this doesn't seem like a cop-out to your question. (laughs) But I think just the starting point really is open and honest communication. So that includes having a conversation about what is it that each person wants to happen next in their ideal world. What is it that you really don't want to happen? What are you comfortable and uncomfortable with? This can be really positive if you have a therapist in the room, but identifying assumptions that are being made and kind of getting clarification. So I think maybe what this might look like is a couple comes in and one person says, okay, well, I'd really like to open up our relationship. And what that looks like for me is we have sort of the freedom to have sex with other people outside of just my partner. And the other person says, okay, well, for me, I'm really uncomfortable with the idea of you having sex with people that we both know that are our mutual friends. Mm -hmm. Can we agree that if we do this, that it would be with new people or people sort of outside of our usual social circles or our existing social circles or something like that? Right. And then, you know, and then they talk about it. But this idea of kind of going back and forth about what I have in my head about this is X. What I have in my head about this is Y. How do we kind of negotiate out with each other and let each other know where we're at, what's going on for us? What are the expectations that we have about Mm -hmm. what's going to happen or what, what we might want to happen or what we might not want to happen? And I think really, truly honest, open communication is is communication that does not avoid topics that run the risk of conflict or discomfort. It means running head first into that stuff and being willing to talk about it, even if it's really hard, even if it makes you angry or your partner angry or anxious or whatever, because the idea is that once it's out in the open, it's something that you can work with and talk about and figure out. Right. And I think that this is something to think about as well. I'm wondering if we can take a step back and think of, Couples in which one or both partners may be thinking about having an open relationship but don't know how to communicate that need to their partners. Because mm. this could get really tricky and the following situation could very well play. This is a risk that's taken. One partner says, I would really like to have a relationship with somebody uh, in which I can explore a particular kink. Mm. The risk is that that partner can internalize that message as assuming that their partner is unhappy with their sexual relationship. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. I think that one of the tips that I would also add to this is that one partner communicating a need is not necessarily a criticism of that of their partner. Oh yeah, that's an, that's an important one. I totally agree with that. Couples that are considering open up the, opening up their relationship, that might be something that we really have to be aware of. Mm. Is breaking apart some of the emotional. Well, what do you mean that you don't want to be exclusive of me sexually? Is it something that I'm doing? Am I not being enough for you? 
Yeah. And I think fast forwarding in time, let's say the couple that you described who was sort of hesitant to disclose this or, you know, let's say they move forward and they're sort of experimenting with different forms of this and seeing what works and what doesn't work and stuff like that. I think what you're describing, the tip it sounds like you're saying is owning your feelings. And not taking responsibility for feelings that aren't yours. Right. So owning your own feelings, not your partner's feelings. Yes. Yes. You know, your partner's feelings are not your responsibility to manage. Our partners cannot make us feel a certain way. Right. Which, okay, that sounds really pretty when we're saying it like this in the podcast, but I think that in real life what that feels like is, well, what are you talking about? My partner can't make me feel a certain way. They just did. We just got in a fight and what I feel is pissed off and it's my partner who made me feel that way. Okay, all right. Like, we get it. We know that that is what it feels like. But what owning your feelings means really is being able to sit down after that fight with your partner and say Mm -hmm. to them, look, I was angry in that fight. You know, what else I was feeling was I was feeling really hurt because I felt like you dismissed me and didn't listen to me. What I felt was kind of insecure because we were fighting about the partner that you had sex with that wasn't me. And I know that I said that was okay, but it made me feel really like maybe you're going to replace me. And that's scary. And I'm scared of that. That's what owning your feelings. Not saying you did X, Y, and Z wrong. It's it's taking a, a not... Uh, accusatory stance towards your partner it's saying look this is where I'm coming from this is these are what my emotions are Mm -hmm. I'm gonna do what I can to remind myself why I'm in this relationship and the positive things that we've got going on and the things that you're doing to work hard at this relationship but I need to let you know how I'm feeling because I might have some things that I want to ask of you like I felt dismissed listen to me that sort of thing how can we meet in the middle how do we come together and what were you feeling I mean if you own your own feelings that also means that you're in a position to be able to listen to what your partner's feelings are right? without feeling like that's an attack on you. And I think that that's something to be uh, really aware of. This is true in any relationship, but I would think particularly in open relationships with uh, multiple people involved, that it's particularly important to be aware of some of the feelings that might come up, some of the feelings of wait a minute, I agree to this, but now I'm feeling really uncomfortable. I'm even feeling a little bit jealous Mm. uh, that you're having this sexual experience with this partner and uh, you and I can't do that. I'm feeling replaced. I'm curious alongside of the importance of owning feelings and acknowledging and taking accountability for your own experience. What are some other feelings that might come up that people that might be looking to open up their relationship or are in new open relationships, what are some emotions that people can look for? Well, jealousy is a huge one. Mm. I think figuring out how to accept and kind of work with jealousy is critical to these kinds of relationships. Jealousy is kind of a hard feeling to describe. I was just about to ask you to distinguish jealousy from, say, anger or sadness or... Yeah, I mean, I think jealousy is kind of like an an envious, I don't know, the way I feel jealousy is kind of like a, an anger with an insecurity underneath or, mm-hmm. or sort of a feeling of competition where there's yeah. no clear competition actually happening but it feels like there's a competition happening but again I mean I think that the real underlying thing in pretty much all experiences of jealousy is that there is a fear or an insecurity that's being kind of tapped on by something that's happening and so if we believe in owning and taking responsibility for our own feelings that includes jealousy and that includes being invested in 
taking a hard look at what your own feelings are telling you about what fear or insecurity is popping up right now. And it could be fear of losing the partner, fear of being replaced, being replaced. fear that they're going to find someone that's better than me. Um, this is back to the competitive thing that you're talking yeah. about. And being able to say to your partner, I'm really scared that you're going to replace me. That feels so vulnerable to say to someone. For sure. But has a way bigger impact on actually addressing that feeling and yeah. allowing that feeling to kind of have its needs met in the relationship in a way that works a lot better than, say, creating a rule mm -hmm. to kind of mitigate the jealousy. Yeah. So, like, a lot of couples who are new to open relationships will create new rules whenever jealousy shows up. Oh, uh, well, whenever you're with a partner who's of the same gender that I am, that makes me feel really insecure. So let's have a rule where you can only have partners who are not the same gender as myself. So that way I don't have to deal with jealousy in that way. Which might work temporarily, but that jealousy is just going to pop up in a different format exactly. later on because you're not really addressing the problem. So it sounds like jealousy then can also increase the power that one person has. Because in that situation you're describing, oh, I'm jealous that this happened and I really just want you to be with someone of the same gender rather than an opposite gender. I think something also to, to watch out for is when we're making new agreements the process by which we do this. Is this about taking care of both people or is this about one person having power in the relationship? I don't like it when you do that, so I'm going to come across and set up this agreement, which the other person may agree to, but the other person may not agree to. Yeah, that's a good point. I really like that comment about power. I think that mm -hmm. really speaks to how you kind of can tell if jealousy is not necessarily being addressed in an optimal way. If the approach that a couple takes to dealing with jealousy elevates one person into a position of greater power, that's not going to work right. in the long term. But Jeremiah, you said something about forming agreements, which is another one of our tips today. Exactly. And I think is at the core of uh, having a positive, open relationship experience is not just honest and open communication, but doing so in clear and concise ways where there's a negotiation process between both partners. I think that something to think about with agreements too is that they're not, they don't have to be set in stone. Right. I and mean, I think that's the big thing. What I would sort of edit that comment to be would be more that it's not necessarily about finding the sort of perfect agreement that works. And I, I know that's not really what you were saying, but, but that it's the process. It's the ongoing negotiation. And if an agreement ends up not really working out and you want to try a new one, you know, that's fine saying like, hey, let's try this for a month or three months. So putting um, a time limit then. Yeah, that can totally work for people as yeah. a way of experimenting with something new and wanting to be open to it. And that can really help people with their discomfort. I think that discomfort is something that can be stretched, something that made us uncomfortable a year ago. Maybe now we mm -hmm. feel like, oh, hey, you know, I got some experience with that and yeah. actually... It's not so bad. If in the negotiation process we say, you know what, that makes me really uncomfortable. I'm willing to try it, but I don't know how I'm going to feel about it, so I don't want to commit to it forever. Mm -hmm. Let's plan on coming back together in a month and deciding from there how we want to keep going. Um, I'm willing to give this a shot, but yeah. um, I definitely want to check in about it yeah. after a designated period of time or something like that. And I think also finding a way to keep track then of the agreements that you've been making in these relationships, I think is really important. One way that I've read about, for instance, is using a Google Calendar. 
where partners put specific dates on the Google Calendar so they know, hey, you know what, Friday night I'm spending time with, with this partner. Uh, Tuesday night, I'm spending time with my primary partner, if I want to use that language. And having all people in this open relationship, uh, having all those people have access to to that Google Calendar, Mm -hmm. that might be a good idea for people looking to kind of keep tabs on what the agreements that we're making on an ongoing basis. Yeah. I also want to comment a little bit on kind of always bringing it back to ethics and our what are our ethics and how do we take action that is ethical according to our values and and so forth. So something that I think gets left out of a lot of these conversations at the beginning of experimenting with open relationships, or actually even for for some people who've been doing this for quite a while, Mm -hmm. is thinking about ethics with regard to the outside partners. And so the kind of open and honest communication that you're having with your primary partner really needs to be had with all partners. Mm -hmm. So that doesn't necessarily mean that you're sharing your innermost hopes, dreams, and fears with someone who's not your primary partner unless you want to. What that really means is communicating about what are the agreements, what are the expectations, being able to say to someone, look, I am in a primary relationship. This is what my agreements with my primary partner are. Mm -hmm. And I want you to know that so you know what you can expect from me and what you can't expect from me. And if you decide that that doesn't work for you, you can make your own informed decisions about whether or not you want to be involved with me. I think that's really important. So it sounds like alongside of that also making agreements about what we will share with partners other than primary partners and what we won't share and making sure that each person is aware of what those agreements are yeah you know this is what i will share with you this is what i won't share this is what what i will do won't do etc yeah i mean i think that's for the most part yeah well that's what i'm getting at i think with open relationships i think that they're very dynamic and very individual so and and the agreements are often shifting So I'm not so much thinking that the things that need to be shared are like the small scale types of things, but more like you can't call me at two in the morning because I can't be there for you in that way. But you can text me and, you know, try to set up a time to see each other in the next week or so and we can Mm -hmm. plan ahead for that. I can't be your emergency contact. That kind of thing. That's not the direction this relationship is going in. Or I think another related piece when it comes to factoring in other people is how do we talk about our open relationships with other, not just other partners, but other people in our lives? And, sure. And do we do at we? all? I was just about to ask, do we? Because there's... A lot of judgment. A lot of judgment, um, a lot of criticism. And I've heard people in poly relationships describe this as similar to processes that gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender people go through in coming out. And identifying, and I think that that gets back to your question about identity versus behaviors. Yeah, I think that um, certainly if you are in an open relationship and you're choosing not to disclose that you're in an open relationship to certain people in your life, you do end up encountering a certain amount of secret keeping. And Mm -hmm. I think that if, if this feels like this is who you are and you're keeping it a secret, then... Yeah, I think that closeted feeling may apply. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to take away from the experience of LGBT folks. But of I course, think that, me neither. But just as a metaphor. Yeah, it, it's true. I mean, it's it's the kind of thing where it's like, is this socially acceptable? And right. if it's not, or if I perceive that it's not, or if I think that I'm going to be judged harshly by others 
do I keep it to myself, but then am I being my authentic self? And it's kind of a struggle there. And what I would say to people is you really need to do what feels right for you. But when it comes to negotiating with outside partners, that's something that you need to be clear about because it's unfair to say to someone, yeah, I want to engage in this relationship with you. I have another partner and and these are the limits and expectations. And oh, by the way, don't tell anyone. Yeah. Because it's one thing if they agree to that, but it's another thing if they don't really realize that that's kind of part of what they're signing up for. Mm -hmm. And depending on how deep these relationships go, you know, if it's just a sexual relationship, there's a possibility that this won't really have major consequences, although it's hard to foresee. If it's a romantic partner, then there can be a lot of like kind of hurt and feelings of being unimportant and things like that that can come up it's a lot to navigate and so i think with with some of the stuff we've been talking about about open and honest communication that's really important this seems to be a point for me where everything kind of starts to converge well but stephanie i think you're right that this is a lot to, to navigate um there are unique challenges that folks who want to pursue an open relationship confront um, and, I, and I think that, I mean, you mentioned earlier, Steph, that you and I are both pro-open relationship, the couples that we work with. And I think that if you're stuck uh, figuring out how to work through some of these emotions or how to make agreements that work for, that work for everybody, give us a call. Reach out to us. We would love to help you kind of work through some of these issues. Absolutely. Uh, you can call us at 617 617- Seven five zero zero one eight three. You can set up an appointment with uh, one or both of us online at www.ssfamilyhc.com. Yeah, or contact us at under the covers twenty seventeen at gmail.com That's if you right. have any questions about this episode or any comments that you'd like to offer. Um, we'd love to hear them. And as always, you can find our podcast on iTunes. Under the covers, colon, the music of relationships. We're also on Stitcher and SoundCloud as well. Thanks so much for listening in. We hope that this is helpful and that this has maybe even uh, piqued some of your interests. We hope that you have a wonderful rest of the week. And uh, stay tuned. We have another episode coming out in a few weeks. Great. Email us. Woo! Woo! (laughs) Take care. Under the Covers is a production of Jeremiah Gibson and Stephanie Wallace, couples therapists at South Shore Family Health Collaborative in Quincy, Massachusetts, the premier location for relationship therapy in the greater Boston and South Shore areas. For more information about Jeremiah and Stephanie, or to schedule an appointment, check them out online at www.ssfamilyhc.com or call 617-750-0183. This podcast can be found on iTunes and Stitcher by searching under the covers, the music of relationships.